Hey everybody and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman and today I am joined by historian David Beto. David is a professor of history at the University of Alabama, a research fellow at the Independent Institute, and the author of the biography T.R.M. Howard, which we are discussing today. This is my conversation with David Beto. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for showing up. You had the pleasure of writing this awesome book with your wife, who is a professor of political science and criminal justice at Stillman College and also a research fellow at the Independent Institute. Do I have that right? That's right. right. How, how was that, getting to do a project like this with your wife? Well, we sort of were together on it from the beginning because I did this book that you wanted to initially interview me about on mutual aid in the welfare state. And one of the chapters in that book dealt with a black hospital in this uh, Mississippi Delta that provided low-cost medical care through kind of cooperative insurance. Very successful. Well, when I got there, the town historian, who later became a very good friend, kept saying to me, so you ought to write about TRM Howard. He's an interesting guy. I said, okay, all right. And he pulled out letters and I just sort of brushed him off. And then I read about this guy in sort of a Mississippi history book. And I said, this guy is incredible. I got to know more about him. I mean, here's a guy that uh, was wealthy, a self-made man, uh, had guns everywhere, that had one of the most civil, uh, successful civil rights organizations in American history. And was a mentor to many people that people have heard of, like Medgar Evers, uh, gave him his first job, Fannie Lou Hamer, famous for saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? And and very well-known civil rights figure. And even one could argue, um, provided an inspiration, a direct inspiration for Rosa Parks in her decision to refuse to uh, give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery bus. So this guy headed mass organizations in the Mississippi Delta, which was probably the most hostile place for civil rights long before Martin Luther King came along. I just said, why isn't somebody written about this guy? I said, I, I've I got to drop everything, all my other ideas for projects, focus on Howard. And my wife was there with me at the beginning when we sort of made that decision. It, it was very much simpatico the way we worked together, I think. And she got me in places that I maybe couldn't have gotten in otherwise, got me interviews with people. And that was tremendously helpful. That's great. You guys got to complement each other's strengths. Yep, exactly. So you mentioned Howard's relationship with other civil rights leaders like Medgar Evers. You said he got him his first job. Can you say? And he was also kind of a, a mentor. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he he he. Howard was one of the wealthiest African Americans in Mississippi, and he had his own insurance company called the Magnolia Mutual Life Insurance Company. And he was looking for young people to to sell insurance. This is like 1951. And Evers had just graduated from college in Mississippi, and Howard interviewed him, said, I got to hire this guy. So Evers was sold insurance for Dr. Howard. That's a little part of his career you don't know about. And apparently, he was quite a good insurance salesman. And that would involve, if you were in the rural Mississippi Delta, you'd have to go to all the big plantations, sell insurance to sharecroppers. Mostly poor people own these policies. These were you know, burial insurance policies, small policies. And he was able to get an entree. Well, he was very influenced by Dr. Howard and Dr. Howard's commitment to civil rights. So with very much the full complicity of Dr. Howard, Evers went around also promoting, hey, you got to register to vote. Hey, we've got a mass rally. And that's pretty revolutionary because there are whole counties in the Mississippi Delta at the time that are black majority counties that don't have a single black voter. That's how bad it was. Uh, much worse, and I don't want to minimize what King achieved, than the conditions faced by someone like King, who had a much more of a middle class. There was a core of black voters in Montgomery, including King, and he was able to build on a very strong black church. Black church in the rural Delta was not as strong. Who did the leaders, who provided the leadership there? Entrepreneurs, black professionals, business people, very different than our stereotype of the civil rights movement. It is led by entrepreneurs to a great extent, self-made people who have a 
their own independent economic base. Even if it could be assaulted by whites, they've got their own base, they've got black customers, and they can kind of, they have something to fight back with. Charles Evers was a very good example of that. That was Megger's brother, who was also very involved in these activities. He just died like five years ago. And Charles ran a funeral home. He kind of had a little, uh, I guess, kind of a brothel. He had, you know, he had all sorts of little businesses that he ran. And he could just withstand the pressure much better than a lot of people because they couldn't fire him. This was a pattern. It wasn't just TRM Howard, who was an entrepreneur and a businessman and a community leader at the same time. This was common in Mississippi that the community leaders were were business people. Yeah, very much so. And you got to, I mean, certainly there's a lot of people going to church in the Delta, but you have a lot of itinerant ministers. They serve several churches. They don't get a lot of money. They depend on a lot on whites to get access to parishioners. So the the clergy is just, for very good economic reasons and so forth, is much weaker, has less clout. In Montgomery, you got pretty big churches that are pretty impressive. If you go to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in uh, Montgomery, it's a nice church, right? And you've got, you've got a, a kind of economic base there. So Howard, in the way you just mentioned, doesn't fit our stereotype of a civil rights leader. He's not a preacher. He he doesn't come from an educated background. Uh, he comes from a very poor background. And uh, he, in some ways, might be seen as kind of, uh, he doesn't fit nicely or smoothly. He's a, he's a big game hunter. That doesn't feel very PC. You know, he's got giant lions and elephant heads in his uh in his house and he dresses very you know relatively ostentatiously you mentioned him changing his clothing like three or four times a day mm-hmm. can you say a little bit about what's the, you call him uh the pt barnum of the civil rights movement can you say a little bit about that he that's one of the reasons he's appealing he goes against the stereotype of course the stereotype is not necessarily true but you kind of the stereotype would be a self-sacrificing uh civil rights figure who doesn't have a lot of money who's maybe a Gandhian type, who's maybe committed very much to turning the other cheek, to nonviolence, um, kind of ethereal, right, in a way. Howard, on the other hand, is a promoter. He's He made his money first. Um, he, was a, he was a doctor. He was a surgeon. But it was said that he could talk your shoes off uh, in a snowstorm. And he was very persuasive. He could raise money for a project. He could, you know, he could get people to pony up. And then when the project was done with and he wanted to do something else, he moved on to other things. That's one of the reasons we forget about him is because he didn't define himself as a civil rights leader. He didn't define himself as a doctor or as an entrepreneur. He was always moving on to new projects. And people would try to talk to him about the Emmett Till case. And Howard was the guy the main civil rights figure involved in that case. And Howard just wasn't that interested in talking about it. So, okay, I move, I move, here's my new project. Yeah. That's such a crucial bit of civil rights history. Can you, can you back up and just say a little bit about the background of the Emmett Till case? Because it's so important. Yeah. And that you, you mentioned, you know, we might not know who Medgar Evers is if it weren't for TRM Howard. Well, we might not have ever heard of the Emmett Till case if it wasn't for Howard either, right? Yeah, and we may not have heard of Rosa Parks, if it hadn't been for Howard, I mean, for Emmett Till, you might have said that. I don't know. But anyway, um, the story of Emmett Till is he's this um, uh, 14 year old. He's from Chicago, just an ordinary kid. And he lives he he has relatives in Mississippi. So he goes there every summer. It's like a summer vacation. Of course, he's got to work, too, but I guess he likes it. Um, and he goes there and he helps pick cotton on his great uncle's, um, um, you know, farm. And, uh, you know, he's just an ordinary kid and he's kind of goofing around. And the story here is is very unclear as to what exactly happened. But it seems that someone dared him to go into this little crossroads country store where there was a very attractive white woman uh, who's still alive named uh, Carolyn Bryant sitting behind the counter. And they said, just that woman sort of looks like a movie star, but you can't go and and uh, uh, talk to her. And so he, he took the dare. Now, we don't know exactly what happened when he went in there. Some stories is that when he left, the only thing that happened is he gave a, a wolf whistle, right? And people heard this. It wasn't that serious a thing. He said something, he gave a whistle, 
whatever. And I think even the 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 wife Carolyn Bryant was inclined to sort of say, you know, not make a big deal about it. But somebody told the husband, her husband, about this, and so and basically he felt like he had to do something about this. This is Mississippi. You know, uh, you you have a, a black boy getting out of his place, saying things that may be insulting his wife. And he he went to his brother and he might not have done anything. But then he went to his brother and his brother was this tough, burly guy. Uh, you know, just just, a, you know, someone said he'd stand out like Mount Rushmore. Right. He was this big guy. And he says, well, you got to do something about this. So what they did is they kidnapped Emmett Till. Apparently, he did not satisfy them. He wasn't apologetic enough. And uh, they drove him around a while and they beat him severely and dumped his body in the Tallahatchie River, tied it to um, a gin fan, old cotton gin fan that they had found. And the body was found really kind of by chance because it had a fisherman saw it and it had kind of caught on a snag. The body was horribly, horribly disfigured. The uh, mother of Emmett Till made the decision that she was going to have an open coffin funeral because she wanted people to see what had happened. And it just outraged people. And they would see that photo. People like Muhammad Ali. In fact, that's in the movie about Muhammad Ali. He saw that photo and he was outraged by that. You know, someone else that was outraged, some of your, your listeners may have heard of, is Walter Williams, the economist. Yeah. Yeah. You know about Williams? I do know about Walter Williams. He's an economist. Did he grow up in the South? He, well, no, or he was did. he just old enough? And he's as a, no, as a no, black this man is of a, a very certain interesting generation. Story aside of Walter Williams, some people don't know about. He was in the military at the time that I guess it was. I guess it was at that time or soon thereafter. And some white guy in the military said, "Oh, uh, something like uh, we know how to handle, you know, N word in Mississippi." And uh, something like that, something really offensive. And Williams beat him up. You know, this is a badass guy. But this is an aspect of Williams that, you know, a lot of people don't, don't really know <laughs> about. So it had an effect on him. It had an effect on a lot of people. And Rosa Parks said she was thinking of Emmett Till at the time she refused to give up her seat, which is about three months after Emmett Till's murder. So all of that is very important. And if you want to see a little bit of a depiction of Howard's role, there's a new miniseries, a series called Women of the Movement. I guess you can still get it in streaming. And they, they do have Howard in there, Howard character. There's some things I dispute with it, but I think it's a pretty, pretty good treatment of Dr. Howard. I'll and, try to include uh, a link to that on the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And they got the actor they got really bears a resemblance to Howard and, um, um, he's not, it's a cameo role, but it's a kind of important cameo role. And maybe someday we'll have a full scale Howard movie. In fact, I'm working on a movie, uh, a podcast series that is going to touch on Dr. Howard. And it's with a, a Hollywood producer who's kind of well-known. He's worked with Morgan Freeman. He's trying to get a buzz for this podcast series, which should come out next year. And maybe it'll lead to something who knows. That's exciting. I, th I hope so. Yeah. And it's going to focus on this all black town where Howard was from, which has its own fascinating history. It yeah, was a you, necessary launching pad for him. Can you say a little bit about the history? You're talking about Mound Bayou, Mississippi, right? Can you exactly. say a little bit about the history of that? Because it's a that's a really interesting chapter all in itself and not just the history, but where it's at today. OK, well, Mound Bayou was founded in about 1890 by a former slave. Uh, and Union veteran, he'd run away and he'd served in the Union Navy, named Isaiah T. Montgomery. And uh, uh, he was a slave, had been a slave of Joseph Davis. Joseph Davis was Jefferson Davis's brother. Jefferson Davis, of course, was president of the Confederacy. So, you know, he knew both of the Davises. And it turns out Joseph was kind of a uh, phil philanthropically minded and gave his slaves a lot of freedom and a lot of autonomy and then was supportive of them after the Civil War. Well, Isaiah, really through his own resources, but also that helped him get a start, kind of, raised money to purchase swamp land, essentially, from the railroad 
and start this new community, this all-Black town. And it was going to be a dream of an all-Black self-governing town that would show what African-Americans could do on their own. So it grew and grew, became a hub of Black business in Mississippi. And nationally, Teddy Roosevelt went there and gave a speech. Booker T. Washington went there. It was a big deal. And it was portrayed, there's songs about it. And it was portrayed as an inspiring story. Now, one thing Montgomery is able to get is he able to get an exemption in a sense. African-Americans in Mound Bayou, unlike virtually all of the rest of them in the Mississippi Delta, could vote. They elected their own mayor. So Mound Bayou had his own mayor, his own police chief. All Everyone was black, all the officials. And, it, and, and that meant a lot because if you had a meeting, you'd have to worry about curfews. If you're black in Jackson, I mean, it's like a totalitarian state. And you're, there are curfews. If you're African-American and you could be forced off the street certain times of the day, doesn't matter who, harassed by the police, Mumbai couldn't be. The, the people there build a hospital run by a fraternal organization called the Knights and Daughters of Tabor. And this was a group that got up to 50,000 members in just Mississippi, providing low-cost health care for like $8 a, uh, a year which would be like a hundred and something dollars now for 30 30 days of hospital care, including major and minor surgery. And most of the people in it were poor, sharecroppers, no government aid. Anyway, they hire Howard as their chief surgeon. He comes to the town in the early 40s. He's very popular, but he also starts all of these side businesses and is very economically successful. So he's not only the doctor, but he has all these investments and he becomes one of the wealthiest African-Americans in the state. He has a plantation of over a thousand acres. He builds a small zoo, community center, uh, first swimming pool for African-Americans in Mississippi. He builds housing. He builds, he has this insurance company that Medgar Evers works for. He does all this stuff in a remarkably <laughs> short period of time. This, And he's a P.T. Barnum type. He knows that this is what this little community needs, what it should have been in decline. So he gives it a burst of energy and it became, it remains a very important civil rights refuge. You know, during the freedom demonstrations, when people are being beaten up in the 1960s, they'd go to Mount Bayou. There was a hospital there. They'd have protection there. It was a place where there sort of was an agreement that whites would they wouldn't stay out, but the white law enforcement wouldn't come in there, although they ended up doing it. But basically, African-Americans ran their own show there. And it was an example to people who came to these rallies. Howard had rallies in the early 50s of 10,000 people, entertainers like Mahalia Jackson, speakers like uh, Thurgood Marshall. In the middle of the Mississippi Delta, you'd get 10,000 people. People would come there and they see this all black town. They said, boy, maybe we could be like this. And people in the all-black town of Mumbai said, well, maybe we have a leadership role to play here. So it was it was a kind of a, a relationship that was led to uh, more civil rights organizing. All this is before Martin Luther King. You've said you said a lot of things there that I wanted to follow up on, but there's a lot to say about Howard. I could talk a, forever about him. Yeah. The one of my first questions, you had referenced your your book from mutual aid to the welfare state, and that's kind of how you researching, I think, fraternal societies in Mound Bayou, I think, is how you stumbled on to Howard. Can you just say a little bit more about, you know, what are fraternal societies or friendly societies or mutual aid societies? They go by these names and how big of a role they played in the lives of ordinary working class and very poor people of all races prior to the welfare state. And, and like you just threw out some numbers that are just a, they're like staggering just to a modern person who struggles to afford health care. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, these organizations were everywhere. Every group had them, Chinese, Japanese, Italians. You know, the, the, the most famous one would be the Masons, but then you get a lot of other groups called the, you know, like the Odd Fellows and the Knights of Pythias. And these were mutual aid organizations. People would pay dues. They would also be self-governing. So you might have one lodge where, you know, some wealthy you know, guy is trying to join the lodge and the guy up there that is, you know, the official that's supervising him as he's joining is 
a guy who works in his factory. And so you have that kind of thing. So they're mutual insurance. You pay dues and they start providing a lot of services. So, so they're partly social, as you might expect. I don't know. Uh, no one watches the Flintstones anymore, probably, but the Simpsons and all these shows have these fraternal societies. And they're kind of the lodge and the guys go down there. There's the social stone side. cutters and it's stone cutters. Exactly. You have these and they have a ritual. They have a real esprit de corps, but they provide all these. They originally provided all these mutual aid services. And despite the name fraternal, it encompassed women's organizations. So there were, especially among African-Americans, but among others, Knights and Daughters of Tabor, the group I just mentioned, had two thirds female membership. Two-thirds of the membership are women. So um, these are more important among, in fact, they're the leading women's organizations in the country in some ways. And that's, as someone who's a historian, I kind of like, why don't people who are specializing in women's history write about these groups more? Because they don't write about them very much at all. They had orphanages, homes for the elderly, uh, medical insurance, uh, tuberculosis sanitariums, unemployment insurance. So if you want to look at a lot of the services of the modern welfare state, you can go back to these organizations, which are non-governmental, heavily working class, far more workers belong, you know, certainly up to the 1930s, to fraternal <clears throat> societies than to labor unions. Yet labor historians have not written much about them. There, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But they are tremendously important. And people would go into these poor neighborhoods. You know, people would wonder, like, we had 40% poverty in the late 19th century. 40% the population. Um, but yet very, very few Americans were getting social welfare from the government, even though there was the poorhouse and there were private charities. But very few Americans, maybe 1% or less, would get any of that aid at any one time. So how do they deal with these issues? Mutual aid is a key part of it, you know, uh, and it's largely invisible. But that's why, you know, people are, are are coming to this country. They're able to survive. They're able to move up the ladder. They're move, move out of these poor areas. And a lot of it has to do with this, this kind of mutual aid network that these organizations provide. Breakdown in terms of like a day or a month's wages, how much it would cost for a ordinary working person to get relatively good medical coverage for, for a month or, or a year or whatever it was? Originally, these organizations would hire doctors. They call them lodge doctors. And they'd actually have elections. And they'd run. And they would provide, you know, basic medical care, including house calls. You would pay something like a dollar to two dollars a year for that. The day wage for a laborer, say around my my years are maybe a little off here, but late 19th century, 1900, around there, was $1.50. So that gives you a little bit of a sense that this is pretty affordable. Give you another sense of that. Most of the people in the Knights and Daughters of Tabor were sharecroppers. That is the lowest rung on the ladder among African-Americans in Mississippi. There are Black landowners. There are quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. There are Blacks that are getting pretty good pay and jobs, but sharecroppers, that you're able to pay these dues every year, have these services, is quite an accomplishment, I think, when you look at it that way. So Howard's coming into this kind of environment, and it's just exploding the membership of this organization. And he ends up getting kind of like, uh, he clashes with the leadership. He sets up his own organization and his own hospital. So in Mumbai, you actually have two hospitals which serve the Mississippi Delta, African-Americans. They serve the old Delta. They're right across the street. One is Howard's Hospital that he splits off from the original organization. The other one is the Taborian Hospital, which is still there. The building's still there and it's been restored. In fact, someone ever want to make a movie, it's, it'd be perfect. But it looks really nice now. But uh, but the those Hospitals serve the entire Delta, and that is where most African-Americans live. And if you want to get hospitalization in white-controlled white hospitals, it's just degrading and humiliating. Uh, got to go in through the back door. You've got to bring your own toothbrush, your own linen, 
very often. People said, well, in Mount Bayou at our hospital, you go in through the front door and you're going to encounter black doctors and all of the staff is black. All the nurses are black, everybody black funded. And it's, you know, it's big deal. So speaking of how humiliating it is going to a white controlled hospital or being in uh, Jim Crow era, Mississippi, I heard you say this is like the closest we've ever come probably in America to a totalitarian society is being a black person in Jim Crow era, Mississippi. Can you say a little bit about, you mentioned curfews, but some of the specific concrete restrictions and indignities that were faced by black people, especially the official legal ones. I know there are informal things like, you know, mob violence and lynchings, but also the the officially restricted activities. Okay, speaking of sort of indignities that come to mind, if you're a black person, you know, you're going to be referred to by your first name. You're not going to be Mr. and Mrs. And that's one of the things Howard did, by the way. He he, he set up, he had, there's, he had a lot of money in the local bank in Cleveland, which is a white bank, Cleveland, Mississippi. And they refused to address a, a black depositor by her courtesy name, Mrs. And he called, he, he called the president of the bank, said, you don't stop that. I'm, you know, we're pulling our money out. The white president apologized and reversed the practice. So that huh. gives you a sense about, about Dr. Howard's clout. Just sort of basic things. If if you're an African-American, you don't serve on juries. Why? Because to be a jury in Mississippi, you have to be a registered voter. There are very few African-American registered voters you're talking about. Gosh, maybe it got up in the 50s, largely through Howard's efforts to about 5% of the total. Like I said, whole counties. You know, So if there's a murder case, that means you're going to be judged by an all-white jury. And there's some just incredible things I've seen, just tip of the iceberg. Howard sent a letter of complaint about, he just heard about this, that there was an execution at 1 a.m. of this black guy who had had a consensual relationship with a white woman. He was executed. And how, you know, and this is like the secret trial and all this stuff went on. Well, certainly the state uh, police, highway patrol say, you know, lords it over African-Americans. In fact, one of the reasons that Howard left the state is because his wife, who came from California, came from an elite family in California. Her brother-in-law was a first black uh, executive at Pepsi-Cola. There's a book, book about him, by the way. Uh, called the Real Pepsi Challenge, because Pepsi in the 40s made this big effort to appeal to blacks. And uh, she was uh, slapped around by a, uh, a state patrolman. Another example, gun control. That's a good one. You could not get a permit, basically, to carry a handgun, um, to, to possess a handgun in Mississippi, certainly to carry one in your car, uh, if you were African-American, because that power was delegated to white sheriffs and they would not, they just, you wouldn't get it. So, I mean, people had long guns and stuff. So Howard had a long gun in his, you know, shotgun in his car and all that stuff. But he also had a pistol strapped around his waist. He had bodyguards with pistols. But every time they were pulled over, you know, they would be searched. And these bodyguards had to pay you know, for carrying a concealed weapon, they had to pay like a hundred dollars. That's you know, I don't know, about a thousand dollars now. I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of money, but they never found Howard's pistol, and the reason was is because he had a secret compartment in his car. He'd push a little button, and he'd stick the gun in there. It was I just said they got these great arrest reports where these guys are arrested, you know, and they have to pay this, and they said no gun was found on Doctor Howard. Howard had guns everywhere. He had a Thompson submachine gun. Uh, people would go into his house, they'd see a gun around every corner. He grew up in Kentucky, rural family. Family survived by his hunting because his father was, you know, out of the picture, basically. And so he would have to hunt for the family. And so he, and then he, as you mentioned, he became interested in big game hunting. So he was very politically incorrect 
And so a lot of people, even at the time, were kind of offended by this. They'd go into his house and he call he had this room called the Safari Room where he had all of his trophies. And he was very proud of it. He, he thought of himself, this is a great accomplishment. I'm the first Black American, the most important Black American big game hunter in the world. Went to India, he went to Alaska, he went to Africa, where he also provided medical care to people <laughs> on the side. He, he didn't care what people thought about this. Emma Till's mother, I interviewed her. She used to go, it was a school teacher in Chicago in the 50s and 60s and used to go to Howard's home with her class so they could see this wonderful, these wonderful accomplishments by this man who was this big game hunter. And so it was a big hit. You know, kids are going to be more impressed by that, you know, than the Emma Till case. I, I want to kind of position Howard as being a politically really kind of an awkward figure for a modern audience and modern partisans. Um, you mentioned his his relationship to guns and gun rights. So that's that's going to be appealing to people on the right. Um, he's also got quite a history, uh, quite a relationship to abortion rights, which is clashes a little bit with that. Now, both those things are comfortable for libertarians, but I think probably libertarians are going to be uncomfortable with his hawkish stance towards communism. And, uh, you know, what, did, didn't he have some quote about wanting to bomb every communist back to Russia or something like that? He's he's kind of all over the place. Can you say a little bit about about that, how he fits into the political landscape? Well, on the on the foreign policy, he does say that he's very anti-communist. In fact, W.E.B. Du Bois sort of had drifted into the communist circle. In fact, Du Bois eventually tried to join the party before he died. And Howard found out, you know, didn't really know about this. And he found out Du Bois had invited him to a rally. He'd agree. And he said, I'm not going to go there. J. Edgar Hoover, who was, did not like Howard, he said he'd use that. So he was very anti-communist, and I wouldn't say he was hawkish exactly. He said stuff like that, but he was against the Vietnam War, for example. Okay. So I wouldn't say he was he was at all very strongly against it. I wouldn't say that exactly, but he was very anti-communist, and that was always the case. He says, we don't need communist help here. And J. Edgar Hoover went after Howard, the FBI director. They looked into Howard and says, we just, you know— this guy's dangerous, but we don't see any evidence that he has <laughs> any any communist affiliations. Now, the abortion stuff. Well, that's going to lose an audience for me. Probably why Glenn Beck, despite some effort on my part, which was maybe misplaced, has never contacted me. Because this would be a guy he'd love, right? All the right buttons, gun rights, entrepreneurial, all this stuff, right? But the abortions. And Howard performed abortions in Mississippi on white women. And uh, that was actually quite common among black doctors who could be trusted to not spread the word around, perhaps. So if you had something embarrassing and you were a white person in the 50s in Mississippi, if it was abortion or it was um, venereal disease, go to a black doctor. You wouldn't go to them for anything else. So this great phobia of interracial sex and white womenhood and here you have the daughters of the white elite going to Dr. Howard, being sent by their parents. A little bit of a kind of contradiction there, I guess you could say. You know, their parents or whatever would send them to Dr. Howard. He would do the abortions. He would usually rent out a house or something, be very discreet about it. Um, nothing ever happened to him. Now, Howard is a lightning rod. He is attacked by the white elite as public enemy number one. He is harassed big time. They say everything in the book about him, but they don't bring up abortion, which seems to me to indicate it probably was known, but they didn't want to bring it up. And we have our modern sensibility thinking in the South, my own state of Alabama, for example, very anti-abortion. That wasn't necessarily true about the Deep South at that time. In fact, I've looked at, looked at enforcement of abortion laws in Mississippi in the 40s and 50s. It's pretty light, and unless a doctor really, really botched it, they tolerated it. We often hear about you know women getting abortions with coat hangers. It's not very common. Women in the era when abortion was illegal generally could find competent doctors to perform abortions through referrals and that kind of thing. Those doctors would be left alone as long as they didn't botch things up. That's sort of a part of the story that I don't think either, either side wants to talk about for their own reasons. 
Um, and doc and Howard is a competent doctor. He, the police will not give him any trouble. They end up giving him trouble in Chicago, but there's a little bit of a different story there. He does that. And that's sort of going to lose me conservatives. In fact, I could name a gentleman. I won't name him, but he's well-known kind of conservative libertarian commentator. And I sort of said, Hey, you know, could you help me with this Howard book? I'm trying to, you know, I don't know what I was asking him for, get a blurb or a referral or something. Says, sure. And he looked at it a little bit and he said, he's pro civil rights guy. He says, abortions? No, don't think so. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it's unfortunate that people have that attitude. David Thoreau of the Independent Institute who published, republished the book, I would guess was recently passed away. Probably not somebody was that enthusiastic about abortions. In fact, I know he wasn't. But David Thoreau, could see the whole picture and he could see this guy is just fascinating but now we're that's an impediment and i think howard be a kind of a big deal among a lot of conservatives now i think given his accomplishments if it weren't for that um and people on the left like him on that but then they don't necessarily like the other aspects of him the materialistic aspects howard had the latest cars his wife had a Cadillac. He had a, I forget what it was. It was an expensive car. And he'd be sailing down the highway. He had the best clothes. He had the best underwear. He heard about Hugh Hefner's underwear. And he said, if Hefner <laughs> can have that, I, you know, that was his attitude. But at the same time, he was the guy that had the common touch. His parents were tobacco twisters, very poor. And Howard, if you were at a meeting or something and there was a janitor in the corner, he'd strike up a conversation with the janitor and, you know, some congressman want to come talk to him. And Howard would say, well, just wait a minute. And he put the janitor first. That's the secret of his populist appeal. He could cook. He could do all this stuff. He could hold a conversation with somebody that was very poor. He could talk their language. But then partly through his wife he was able to mix with the elite as well. So he was able to move beyond those two worlds, which is really quite interesting and pull that off. So why do you think there are aspects of Howard's life that make him maybe a little bit politically radioactive to some modern audiences? But I feel like that's true of so many of our heroes, political heroes, to one degree or another. There's plenty that the modern left should be able to find to dislike about Malcolm X, for instance. Um, but he's still he's still held up because he's he's done so many important and great things in big enough areas. And I feel like TRM Howard should should fit into that mold too. Whether whether on the right or on the left, there are things that they're going to dislike, but there's also so much to like wherever you're coming from. So what what why has he not maintained his appeal. I mean, you mentioned it earlier a little bit that he's he's too much of a Renaissance man to have had a single identity as a civil rights figure, and maybe that's hurt him a little bit. But I, hearing reading reading the book, it's just shocking to me that I had never heard of him or that nobody seems to have heard of him who hasn't read your book. That's about right. I think there's potential, and I think there's potential on both the right and the left because there is a lot both sides could like about. Dr. Howard. Um, and I think there's some signs that that's changing, like the Women in the Movement series. Now, why did he initially kind of, uh, why why was he not remembered? Well, partly because he moved on to other things, as I've said. But he was always involved in civil rights, but more behind the scenes later. But also, he's, he's in the green power. He's a follower of Booker T. Washington. And Washington's view was the way for African-Americans to get project is make money and establish a strong economic foundation. In the 1960s, when Howard sort of moved into obscurity in terms of public consciousness, that was looked down upon by a lot of people among African-Americans, the, the money-making aspect. People like King, who I think was a great guy in a lot of ways, but King said things like that, right? King was not a big self-help, uh, pro-business guy, too materialistic. He had that kind of attitude. That attitude was out there. Um, you had the Great Society and all that, and it sort of went against that. So I think that has something to do with how Howard is forgotten 
And I think the abortions have something to do with that, because there's a lot of anti-abortion feeling among African-Americans as well. There was at the time. There were people like, uh, oh, Dick Gregory said, what's, you know, how many children should you have? And he said, yeah, six and one in the oven or something like that, right? There was a lot of view that this was genocide. Still arguments you get among conservatives today that this is a, you know, um, this is attempt to control black population. So he had to contend with that to some extent. So there were people that were uncomfortable about that. You mentioned Malcolm X, though. Malcolm X, before he died, he was a friend of Dr. Howard. He went to Dr. Howard. Doctor gave him support. Dr. Howard gave him support. Howard raised money for the children of Malcolm X when he was assassinated. Helped to provide for their education. He was the head of the Chicago group uh, raising money for that purpose. So he knew them all. He knew all these civil rights figures. And he knew Jesse Jackson, who has not consented to an interview with me. But Howard <laughs> helped Jackson get his start. There are all sorts of rumors as to why that is, but they, you know, but in any case, Jackson preached at Dr. Howard's funeral in 1976. He was the minister there. So uh, he knew them all. Uh, Jackson's group, Operation Push, was founded in Dr. Howard's home. This is a guy that's everywhere. I'm sorry you weren't able to get a, an interview with Jesse Jackson, but another contemporary. I got an interview with, uh, just interrupting real quickly, I got an interview from Jesse Jackson's brother, who at the time was in federal prison on um, kind of murder charges or something like that. His name is oh, Robinson. Wow. He gave me a good interview, by the way. He was sort of a rival to Jesse early on in Chicago. And he says, well, I, it, uh, it, says, I get, it was a nice interview. He says, well, they, get t- they tell me I got to go. And I said, well, I guess you do. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Very good guy, you know, and at least for an interview guy. <laughs> well, you got, an, you got a nice mention on the back of your book from another contemporary uh, left-wing black activist, Cornell West. And, and I can't imagine he's a big fan of abortion. How'd you pull that off? Oh, I would think West would probably, well, that's a good question. I don't know what his views are on abortion. He's he's quite religious, isn't he? I don't know if he is or not, but he's certainly on the left. You know, someone, he's, David Thoreau was an amazing man. He knew, he knew West. He knew, he, he was able to go to him and and persuade him. West, uh, I was a little surprised by that, but for what I hear about West, West is a very kind of open-minded guy, likes dialogue with people he disagrees with. He was very positive about Ron Paul, for example. Yeah, he, he's he's very willing to talk to people he disagrees with. I admire that about him a lot. And he was he's a kind of guy that I've heard good stories about. I mean, he'll, you know, he's a little like Howard is some ordinary person and he'll just talk with them for hours. He's not into status and so forth. So although every time I see West, I, I you know, kind of I used to cringe a lot and I disagree with him a lot. But I'm, I'm much more favorably disposed to him because he's some we need people like that. Someone who's able to reach out and he probably would have disagreed with Howard and some things, but he would have seen Howard as this guy that was, hey, this guy did a lot of good stuff. You know, that would have been his attitude. So speaking of the politically mixed legacy of Howard, I wanted to read a paragraph that I really stuck with me. Maybe you could comment on it. Howard's opposition to institutionalized racial supremacy coexisted with and often complemented deeply conservative views on fundamental principles. He was not a deep philosophical thinker, but rather had no affinity for grand social schemes. While he flirted with black nationalism of a certain type, he never embraced full-blown group consciousness. He invariably expressed admiration for American founding principles as well as the founders, There is not a thing wrong with Mississippi today, he flatly declared, that real Jeffersonian democracy and the religion of Jesus Christ cannot solve. Deep down, he was confident about the potential of blacks when given the opportunity to overcome prejudice and thrive by practicing the Franklin-esque virtues. He pointed to Jackie Robinson, whom he deeply admired, as an example of a man who does the job so well that the world forgets that his skin is black. Young people, let efficiency and service be your watchword and making money will take care of itself. I feel like that just says a lot about where he was politically and how some some of it doesn't fit in nicely with other civil rights leaders today. He was comfortable around white people as well. That's an interesting point. Very confident. He went to school at a Seventh-day Adventist medical school called Loma Linda University now, and he was the only black student. Um, And I interviewed people, this is years ago, but this is like in the, who knew him in the 1920s. 
And they all liked him. They all got along with him. They all joked around with him. And they didn't see him as a guy that had a chip on his shoulder. They saw him as a guy that was just kind of fun to be around and wouldn't be intimidated. And so that was a kind of a key thing about him. He's charming. So he could go. There's a racist centered Mississippi named Bilbo. Howard knocked on this guy's door. This is something African-Americans didn't do. He introduced himself. And, uh, you know, he bowled over people like that. Um, so that was important. You want to talk about his sort of conservative aspects should be mentioned that Howard ran as a Republican for Congress in Chicago. He yeah. tried to challenge the Democratic machine um, and he campaigned as a Republican and he remained a Republican uh, until he died. As far as I know, he's he, he doesn't fit that stereotype either. When African-Americans are going over to the Democratic Party beginning in the late 50s, he's he's moving into the Republican Party. Yeah, he's coming. He's kind of entering politics, though, at a time when that switch isn't so established that it's yeah. is it that uh, is it that odd? I mean, the, the Republican Party obviously is the larger home for the African-American population post-Civil War to the extent that they have a political home. That change start. I, I know that, you know, Kennedy and Nixon are both kind of trying to court the black vote at that time. And it definitely goes to the Democratic side. So is it was he seen as like a sellout for not moving over at that point? I think you're absolutely right about that. There were a lot of black Republicans um, still, even, you know, even in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So they had a there was a contingent there um, in the 1950s. You know, uh, the black vote had gone over to Roosevelt in the in the New Deal period, but it came back to some extent. And Eisenhower got like 40 percent of the black vote. One of Howard's fellow Republicans who ran for office in Chicago with him at different times was um, Jesse Owens, the Olympic uh, gold medalist. Oh, I that didn't was a know good he friend ran. of Dr. Howard. And I've got a great picture in my book of Jesse Owens. I love this picture. Crowning Howard king of the party because Howard had these fabulous New Year's Eve parties. They were golfing partners. He knew all, all these people, but they were fellow Republicans. That gives you an idea. And you had Joe Lewis was a Republican, for example. And there were others like that, prominent figures. You mentioned a little while back that Howard was a follower of Booker T. Washington. And I know that the, the division, the alleged division between W.E.B. Dubois and Booker T. Washington is overstated. But can you say a little bit about their respective either influences or just how Howard's view of civil rights fits in? With those and and other prominent civil rights, older civil rights leaders, Marcus Garvey, uh, Frederick Douglass, how does he fit in with the the prior tradition of civil rights leadership? Well, you're right about the. the there's a very good book on the Washington Du Bois debate. It's not at all what you think. Um, there was uh, Washington was promoting fights against for disfran against disfranchisement and Jim Crow. He was doing it behind the scenes. Du Bois knew that, but Du Bois attacked him as a sellout. And I mean, I don't think Du Bois, Du Bois was a brilliant scholar in a lot of ways, but I think he was a very duplicitous fellow in some ways. But anyway, the story is that Washington is into self-help, which is true, building an economic foundation, that he really saw that as important. And he was right, because what ultimately led to the modern civil rights movement was the growth of a large black middle class, a large black professional class that had grown gradually and was able to assert itself. So I think that really the story of the civil rights movement is a story of how Washington was ultimately right. Washington, interestingly enough, in like 1900 predicted someday we will have a black president. Howard believes that. However, and Howard's a diplomat and Washington was a diplomat. But Howard is also in your face. And he gives these speeches in Mississippi that are inflammatory as hell, talking about the former Senator Bilbo coming back from the, you know, he died and, and sending a message to the governor of Mississippi saying, ease up on the Negroes. And the governor says, why should I do that, uh, Senator Bilbo, the leading racist of all time? And Bilbo says, because we got a Negro fireman down here keeping it mighty hot for us. He gave speeches like that in Mississippi. 
So he gave inflammatory speeches and he was in your face and he would just like, why hadn't they killed this guy? Amazing stuff. King wouldn't have dared do this and probably shouldn't have dared do it. But he was also someone who had white friends. He had diplomatic skills, but he wasn't uh, ass kissing. He wasn't good at ass kissing. He would kind of charm you and you, you, but he wouldn't sell out. He combines these interesting things. He's really unique. One could say he's Washington in some ways. One could say he's Du Bois. The stereotype of Du Bois is an elite strategy. Well, Howard's strategy in Mississippi was to get all the black elites, the heads of business organizations, agricultural groups, teachers, and get them all together in one big organization. And then they would reach the masses through this organization. Sounds a little bit like Du Bois in a way. But Howard pulled it off. He'd get these rallies of 10,000 people through this, this group he had in the early 1950s. He'd have a mass boycott of service stations that refused to provide restrooms for African-Americans. This is before the Montgomery bus boycott, and he won. So um, he's unique, but he's got a little bit of Malcolm X in him. He's got a little bit of, you know, Washington. He's got a little bit of King. He's he's very much into self-defense, but he's not somebody that's promoting initiation of violence. But he's saying, you know, you should have defend yourself. But that's part of Southern gun culture, rural Southern gun culture, which African-Americans have just as much as anybody else. You know, the, the family gun. He's, he stands out. He, there really isn't anybody that's quite like him. You can get bits and pieces that are like him. Did he flirt with black nationalism or repatriation at some point in his career and then kind of back off from that? No, I don't think he ever promoted anything like that. Um, he did, I guess you could say, flirt with a certain kind of black nationalism because his he would say stuff like, we need to support Negro business. We need to patronize Negro business. But on the other hand, he'd say, hey, hey I went to the barbershop the other day and this guy spent more time talking with me than shaving me. We have to get up with the times. We have to be efficient. So he did promote that idea of kind of patronizing African-Americans, but he would also, he'd also say, look, you know, that's, there's a limit to that. So he flirted with those ideas. Yes. But he wasn't, uh, he wasn't promoting a kind of race racism in the sense that you get from some groups like, you know, Elijah Muhammad, where blacks are superior or something. He was an individualist, I think. And he dealt with people as an individual. So I talked to people that knew him, and one guy said, he never made a racist comment in his life that I heard. Isn't that amazing? This, this black doctor, his personal doctor, never made a racist comment in his life. I mean, he had his flaws, definitely. Howard had his flaws, as all these figures do. But I I, I think he kind of struck a balance between all these different things. You mentioned Elijah Muhammad. And speaking of flaws, I think they probably shared uh, certain peccadilloes for uh, extramarital oh, yes. affairs. You want to say a little bit about, about the dark side? Oh, this is the dark side, big time. Of course, we've heard dark sides about Martin Luther King, but Howard left behind a lot of children. <laughs> Howard had something like... And none from his wife? Yeah, well, he had an adopted child. I don't think she could have children. I don't know what the story was. But he had an adopted child with his wife. He was married to her for 40 years. But he had like six... Maybe seven, I forgot, I lost count. Children outside of marriage. I think all of them with different women, except one one woman did have two of the children. But they but he 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 had these relationships. I mean, in the in the 40s and 50s, there was seemed like there was one being born every year. And he would not deny that they were his children. He did, he hired them and gave them support, but that's an obvious flaw because they were not living with him. Yeah, he, he did provide help and so forth, but there's a limit to how much that can all happen. And one of the things we're dealing with in, in setting up this series, this podcast series, is the director was very blunt, says, who owns this estate? And I said, well, no, you know, it was left in chaos when he died. And uh, nobody really. Well, who about his children? I said, well... <laughs> and we've contacted a good portion of those that survive and grandchildren, and they're all with 
the project. But this director has this idea, don't go to them. Get them to kind of agree, you know, to, to, to back this, you know, what we're doing here. And we've had good luck with that. But there are a lot of children, probably, you know, who knows how many more there are. But uh, definitely, that was one aspect of Howard that you could you could definitely criticize. And probably lots of grandchildren, too, at this point. Oh, yeah. He, and who knows what the motivation was other than, you know, physical attraction. But he didn't seem to, for a doctor, he didn't seem very good about uh, using birth control techniques from what I can see. <laughs> So I understand you're you're working on a project right now focused on Zora Neale Hurston, another neglected figure in Black history. You want to say, and another person whose politics are maybe a little awkward for a modern audience. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I wish I could say more about that. I've written a little bit about Hurston, but the Hurston estate, Hurston was a Black, uh, very trendy now. People like Alice Walker, you know, praised Hurston. And, you know, I mean, she's a, kind of a big deal. If you go to English departments, you'll see Hurston posters. But Hurston was a, I call her basically a libertarian, um, was very against the New Deal, the Roosevelt's, very much into self-help, into business, had, had those kinds of views. An individualist. So I'd compare her to someone like Ayn Rand and Isabel Patterson. Didn't she um, call and- Truman the butcher of Asia? She called him the butcher of Asia for dropping the atomic bomb. So she was sort of anti-imperialist. She was like a feminist of sorts. And, and she was just all this stuff. So I wanted to do uh, to print her, um, publish her essays, some of which have never been published, where she, or their anti-communism and, and things like that, individualism that, you know, have been neglected. But I could not get permission from the estate. They wanted $20,000. And I tried and I tried, but they just wouldn't cooperate. So we had to drop that project. And I'm doing a new project now. It's a book coming out next year. It's called FDR's War on the Bill of Rights. So that's a bit of a switch for me. So it's looking at FDR's attacks on civil liberties during and and, and, and various things, surveillance state and all of this in the 1930s and 40s. And a lot of it's original research original document and so that's a bit of a switch but uh maybe i'll get to hurston someday but i I have a feeling that that has just passed us by because we tried every trick in the book and we could not raise that kind of money and we just gave up on it eventually so i've written a little bit about hurston i did an article my wife and i for the independent institute so if anyone wants to google that they can get a little bit of a sense of, of my take on hurston but the book just doesn't look good now I'll make sure to link to that article. And if anyone in my audience is listening and feels like starting a GoFundMe and raising $20,000 for this project, please go forth and raise Or going back to the estate and talking sense into them because it was just, they were cooperative and then suddenly not cooperative. What can you do? You have some failures and you have successes. Okay, well, that other project sounds really interesting too. Do you have a, a rough idea of when that might be? released next year sometime it's finished and we just have to go through the chapters and check out the citations and do final proofreading but it's got everything in there Uh, japanese internment it looks at uh, roosevelt's surveillance state which was massive um searching private telegrams which was the kind of the email twitter of the time sure um millions of them um, so we and, and looking at uh, the civil rights aspects of of uh, surveillance in the South of African-Americans enabled by Roosevelt. So it's got a lot of things in there like that in a lot of and, and, and I would argue we argue in this book that Roosevelt's civil liberties record was actually worse than Wilson's record in World War One. Really? Uh, which is uh, which goes against the common view that world war one was relatively tolerant. I don't think it was at all, but you mean, um, the, the common view that world war two was relatively tolerant. I, yeah, I'm sorry. World war two was relatively tolerant. I, I dispute that. Okay. I think world war it's worse than world war one in a lot of ways. I'm willing to believe that. I have a question and I'm sure this has been re- researched. Is there any sense of what, if he were to, continue living Roosevelt's plans were as far as continuing to run? Was he always planning to run for president until he died and be president for life? Well, you know, people would have said that, you know, he's going to give it up eventually. And here he runs for a fourth term. 
would he have run for another one? I could imagine him doing that, but Roosevelt was an absolute health disaster. It's really criminal the way they covered up uh, how bad his health situation was. But it was a well-coordinated well-coordinated cover-up in the 1944 election. We think Joe Biden is problematic. Roosevelt was just at death's door repeatedly. And, and it was- Yeah, they just, wouldn't even photograph him in a wheelchair. No, that was kind of a deal. The media really kind of had a deal where they wouldn't do that and they wouldn't report certain things. But just about everyone knew that that's why it was so important who his vice presidential candidate was. And Henry Wallace- lost out because of that, because people said, well, we can't have this wild man, Henry Wallace, this uh, guy who's, you know, this leftist, you know, extremist, we can't have him. And he was kind of a little wacky in some ways, too. He was into at least Eastern religions and stuff. It's a little bizarre stuff. And so they dumped Wallace and because it was well known to insiders in the Democratic Party that likely Roosevelt would not live much longer. And uh, so it was it was a big cover up. And if had the American people known half of what was going on, uh, Roosevelt would not have won that election. I have some sense that Wilson's interest in getting involved in World War One was maybe lukewarm. And some of it was motivated by using an opportunity to institute some domestic policies he wanted to to put forth, like some of these surveillance things and central planning. Is Is there a similar story going on with Roosevelt that? The war was a vehicle to some extent for him to do what you're writing about? I think to some extent, I'd say actually, like I say, Roosevelt is sort of worse in a certain sense. If you look at Wilson's violations of civil liberties, and there were many of them, a lot of that was because he would tolerate um, subordinates like attorney generals and so forth. And he said, well, if you want to prosecute him, okay. If you want to throw these socialists in jail, fine. Um, You go ahead. You know, I, I don't know if I'm for this, but do it. Roosevelt, though, is actually initiating surveillance, actually going out there and saying, you know, pushing internment and pushing actually stronger action than many of his subordinates were willing to take. But I think you're you're right to some extent that it's seen as an opportunity by both Wilson and Roosevelt, aside from whether or not they want to get in the war for that purpose. But once the war occurs, it is an opportunity they see to kind of transform things. But Roosevelt is initiating. And the, the, the good story there is a lot of people are pushing back. Um, Roosevelt's own attorney general and the FBI director did not want to intern the Japanese. A lot of people say, oh, well, he's had to. This is hysteria. Both those two key figures, and there were, there were others, did not want to do it, but he wanted to do it. Is this the person before Hoover? No, it was Hoover. Hoover was, Hoover was in there from the 1920s to the 1970s. He was in there forever. Yeah. Okay. And so he was against the internment. Yes, he was. That's and shocking. for some, yeah, no, Hoover's, Hoover's a mixed bag. And some of it, he actually made an argument, well, these are American citizens, but he also, I don't think, wanted to deal with it. And basically both him and the attorney general kind of ended up giving in in a way because they didn't want anything to do with it. And they didn't have anything to do with it. It was a military was handling it. They were kind of forced into it to some extent, but the, they, they, they said, well, let the military do it. We don't want anything to do with this. Roosevelt's attorney general in his memoirs has, I mean, there's all says he said, I didn't want to do this, but he wanted it. He wanted to intern the Japanese in Hawaii, which never happened. Roosevelt actually pushed that. And that would have meant Putting all the Jap, which is like a third of the population. I was going to say that's that. Putting them on a island, a small island, and then, you know, having that be a gigantic. They actually talked about transporting them to the continent, but they said all the ships we're going to have to use. I mean, this is 1942. (laughs) Don't we need these ships for something else? (laughs) Yeah, maybe we need them for something else. No, he's that's that's why in some ways he's worse. And part of the reason you don't think of World War II in the same way is there just isn't much opposition to World War II. So to prosecute people for anything that's at all anti-war is hard to find people that are anti-war. you got to really dig down to find people that qualify. World War I, there are a lot of people that continue to be against that during the war. And it's hard so, to find people that are going to speak up on behalf of and make a big deal out of anti-war dissidents in World War II. Oh, yeah, definitely. But there are some there's uh, there's some people that are 
like the socialist leader Norman Thomas and the more of a classical liberal figure, uh, Oswald Garrison Villard, and people like Senator Robert Taft. So there are people that are willing to speak up for civil liberties in World War II. So that is, you, you do have some heroes there. Well, I'm very much looking forward to checking out that book, and you can look forward to me reaching out to you again to talk about it when it comes out. You don't have to make any commitment, but I'd love to talk to you about that book. Okay, sounds good. Do you want to say anything about where people can find you if they want to follow you, keep up with what you're up to? If they want to know about the book, they just can go look it up under my name, B-E-I-T-O. And the best one to order is this one, TRM Howard. Dr. Entrepreneur, Civil Rights Pioneer. Black Maverick was the original book. This is the revised book. It's got everything Black Maverick has, and it's cheaper. It's only $20. Black Maverick is a lot more expensive. So you could look at that. If you go, if any of you are in communication with the Independent Institute, they publish this book, and they're going to publish the next one. So you're probably going to start seeing stuff about that there, you know, coming up pretty soon. Okay, and, I'll, I'll uh, put a link to the to the more affordable version of this book. Yeah, and people are welcome to write me, so you can put my email up or, or whatever. Okay, wonderful. questions or anything. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a, a real pleasure. Okay, thank you, Chris, and I'll, I'll talk to you later, hopefully soon. That was David Beto, and his book, once again, is T.R.M. Howard, Doctor, Entrepreneur, Civil Rights Pioneer. You can find that book and other topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. If you're enjoying Ideas Having Sex, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Stitcher, and please rate and review the show. It's a small thing, but it's extremely helpful. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.